Good afternoon, and we're live on the Culture Uncorked podcast. It's Wine Wednesday today. It's happy hour. And we had scheduled a panel, but one of our panelists, Hilton Harbor, um, unfortunately, he had to go to the beach today. So, uh, you know, we're going to have just a regular session. And we've got Patrick Sells here today. From, he's the Chief Innovation Officer at Quantic. And he was the Digital Banker of 2020 of the year. So um, the hat, the hat. I mean, I've only met you a couple times and getting to know you better. But I mean, that hat goes everywhere with you. That it does. There's got to be a story behind that hat. It does. I uh, and actually, I just had about a thousand of these made in the Quantic colors to give away to anyone who uh, wants them. But you're right, Lisa. I do wear it every day. Um, I actually had found this hat. I think it was a friend of mine's, and uh, some other friends were in town, and we just one day started talking about gratitude, love, and patience, and how important those three things were in our lives. And this hat kind of ha- you know has the heart on it, and I just decided, why not become the bank of love, if you will. And so I wear it as a reminder to myself and it's a great conversation starter. Uh, yeah. A lot of people ask why you're wearing that silly hat and uh, yeah. but it's going to become a thing. So if anyone wants a hat, hit me up on LinkedIn and I'll send one out to you. Yeah. You know, it's funny you say conversation starter. So uh, my good uh, friend and colleague and mentor, her name's Patricia Fripp and she's British and she wears hats and you wouldn't know this, but I actually have an array of hats. Like I've got a whole closet full of all kinds of hats and they are great conversation starters, aren't they? And they're really good for culture and for conversation starting in the culture and not just the water cooler talk. But you have an amazing culture at Quantic. And so uh, let's talk a little bit about, you know, some of the missions and passion and values that are instilled through the, the rooms of Quantic and what that looks like. Yeah. You know, I, while we, but while Patrick's getting ready to respond, Lisa, we kind of have bookended the culture experience here. So we had Gary Ridge, who was the CEO and chairman of WD-40. So, I mean, they sell kind of oil, essentially. And they have this incredible culture, right? They really, really do. And and you'd love Gary. I mean, he's uh, – mm-hmm. but you, would, you might describe them as kind of the, you know, advanced culture in that kind of world. Now we have the digital banker of the year, and you've got the other end of the spectrum. But there are a lot of common ingredients, and 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 I'd like to just sort of connect a few of those dots. But Patrick, yeah, let's hear about Quantic and and your culture, and let our audience know about this incredible company that you guys are building and what you're doing. Yeah, uh, thanks, Lauren. You know, just uh, Lisa, as you were kind of framing up the question, you did you said something that stood out to me. I think is important, and that's the role of symbols and how do we use symbols to really bring to life for nonverbal communication. And as I unpack part of the quantum culture, I think you'll be able to make a connection to this hat and exactly what we do. And I think that's part of really having an authentic culture. It's not just the words you put on a picture on the wall. It's the things you do. It's how you talk. It's how you lead. That's how you make a culture authentic. So, But to talk a little bit about Quantic and what we're doing, the way we see it is that there's really three key components to culture. Um, a culture needs a call, a mission, a call to action, something that make, that's bigger than life, right? And so for us, it's to break the system for financial empowerment. That's probably the most provocative bank mission statement out there, right? And what we mean by that is that underlying the financial system is really kind of this one size fits all product offering, right? There's not a whole lot of differentiation and really one size fits all culture. And so we want to say, look, we want to do that differently, but not just to do it differently. We want to do it differently from the point of financial empowerment. Right. And that's for both our employees and our customers. And it's actually kind of a stop there to share just kind of a fun story. One of our core values that I'll talk about is this idea of try it on. And I was unpacking that mission statement and our receptionist actually says to me, you know, I used to work at a restaurant, a steakhouse here in Manhattan. And one of the best perks of the steakhouse was that when, you know, the day was done, if there were steaks left over, the staff would get to eat them. Right. And he's like, what's like the cool perk you get if you work at a bank? Right? <laughs> and, and I was like, shit, you know, that's a, that's a great insight. And he said, shouldn't we get the best bank products? And it's right. 
So we decided that we're going to, on money market savings and CDs, we will guarantee for our employees the highest interest rate available in the country. Wow. Right? Why would we not? Yep. Right? It's kind of one of these silly things. I mean, that goes back to this idea of the mission statement of doing breaking the system for financial empowerment. That speaks to every way in which we want to do things. So the mission kind of call to action. The second pillar we see in culture is um, decentralized decision making. In other words, how does everyone in the organization know what the most important questions are and how to answer yes and no to that? And so we do those through what we call our three strategic anchors, um, innovative deposits. We want to build checking accounts that uniquely align to a consumer's passion. They can talk about that. Adaptive lending. We only want to lend where other banks won't. And then maximum leverage. We want to create the maximum leverage out of technology and this idea of human flourishing. And that's the culture, you know, part of what we do. The third component is shared language. In other words, you have to have common words that everyone knows and understands and means something, right? And it brings you together. And we have four core, we did that through our core values. There's four of them, progress, not perfection. In other words, the destination isn't perfection. The destination is a constant state of progress. Um, try it on. We want to be quick to try new things on. We don't know if you're going to like something until you do it, right? And so you don't, if you see a t-shirt at a department store, you don't wait for 20 minutes. You just put it on and you go, I like the fabric, but not the size, or I don't like it at all. Right. You don't know. Like we became this digital bank over the last two years. The average age of our customer is 58 years old. Most every bank that calls me goes, well, how do you bank the millennial? I go, I don't know. <laughs> I don't do that. Right. <laughs> you wouldn't know until you try it on. Um, uh, know the goal, very intentional about the outcomes. And then uh, say cheese. We want to be a place where you smile, right? If you think about it, whenever someone goes to take a picture of you and they say, geez, both you smile and the photographer smiles. And so how can we be that, right? And that's kind of goes back to the hat around love and happiness. So long-winded question, but there's the culture in a nutshell at Quantic. And I'm sure we can talk more about that. Yeah. Go ahead, Lisa. Go. I was going to say, so, you know, say cheese, you know, try it on. First of all, I love that. I think that that's, you know, something that can be instilled, not just in the halls of contact, but in the halls at home, right? Uh, within your family, within your life. Um, but say cheese, that's a unique um, value proposition, right? Like, tell us, tell us a little bit more about how did you guys come up with say cheese? Because that's something that not every other, you know, you know, trust or what have you. I mean, those are very common ones, but right. safety is not. So how'd you come up with that? Yeah. So we look at, you know, these like teamwork, integrity, hard work. Those are really permission to play values. Those aren't core. Those aren't unique. If you don't have those, you're not going to work at this company or any company. Right. So not that those things don't matter, but they almost don't matter. Right. Those are table yeah. stakes. How we came up with it was we actually got a group of employees together and we said, we want everyone to think about and throw out six, seven names of the most of the people at Quantic they wish that they could clone. doesn't matter what position you're in. We want to just come up with those names. And we did, you know, and it was people like an executive assistant was one, a loan opener was one. It wasn't necessarily, it wasn't actually anyone in management. And then we put them all up on a whiteboard and we said, okay, what are 10, 15 characteristics that are true of each of these people? And then once we put that all out there, we said, okay, what's common? What's unique and what's common? Because we think core values are things that should be unique. They should be timeless and it needs to be true, right? It's not something you get to say. It should already be what it is. And all we are trying to do is articulate that in a certain, you know, in a more refined way. And there's power in choosing those words. So Say cheese came because as we looked at the people who we enjoyed working with the most, we realized every time I talk to them, I smile, right? Like that's yeah. what we want to clone. So let's make that our value, our core value, say cheese, you know? I love that. I love that. It's like, how do you take that passion and put it in a bottle and, right. and let everybody drink the Kool-Aid, right? Right. And so- yeah, Cool exercise. Go ahead. Yeah, keep going, Patrick. Oh, I just, you know, one of the ways like in which we brought this to life, right, is we start off every meeting, vendors, customers, employees with positive focus. Yeah. So everyone has to go around and say something positive personally or professionally. And what happens at the beginning of every meeting at Quantic, everyone is smiling, right? Yeah. And that sets the tone for the meeting. And we bring this into the interview process. 
because we realize that, well, yeah, everyone wants to say cheese is nice and they agree with it. They may not actually really want to, right? Yeah. And then we got to figure that out early on and not hire those people. Well, and it's important too to keep, you know, in order to keep a culture like that, it's one thing to create the culture, but it's, you can quickly knock down the walls of, of a great place uh, very quickly if you don't have the right team and the right leadership and most, most importantly, communication skills within, right? And so how do you, you know, we talk a lot about nudges, right, Lauren? Like we talk, you know, how do you keep nudging people forward and, and creating this really psychologically safe place where clearly at Quantic, you can show up and be your authentic self. How do you guys keep that momentum going? That's really important because it's one thing to create it. It's another to keep it sustained. Yeah, and I think that's something... We're not, we're not experts on culture, right? We're a bank. Um, we're trying to yeah. figure this out. So progress, yeah. not perfection. I'm sure we don't always get it right. But, um, you know, I think what's really important, and we talk about this, we, I tell personally every new hire that comes on that what you'll find here is a, a frame fr framework, a foundation that we say this is us and that we support this. We'll put real money and energy behind it. But mm -hmm. from this moment on, what the culture is or does is really up to you. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how good or bad it is. There isn't good or bad, right? We've just said this is us and we're okay with any expression within that. And so they have to know that they can trust us when we say that, right? I was talking with the company last week and gave a talk around innovation for their all-company meeting. And they asked around, well, how do we um, – you know, everyone has innovative ideas. How do we, how do we pick the most innovative one? And I go, you don't, <laughs> right? You got to do this differently, right? Like the culture has to trust that innovation. You want them to be innovative. You want them to try new things and it doesn't matter about what you're doing. You just, they simply have to know they can. And if yeah. you make it into a process, you're, you're stripping away all of this and they're not going to trust you. Now, just the smartest person with the best idea is gonna to get to go do their thing. Your culture hasn't changed at all, right? And you really have to let it go. And so I think our job is to do that, um, you know, with kind of a religious ferocity is show that if you want to do something aligned with this, we'll support it. And then to fight off anyone who tries to come against it. That's wonderful. Cause you know, I, I, you know, one of my core beliefs is, is if I believe what you believe and you believe what I believe, we're unstoppable, right? And so that that is um, outstanding. So tell us a little bit more about how did you ever become the digital banker of the year? What did you do that made it unique and different uh, in the marketplace that brought that acclaim to you? Uh, so uh, I'll tell you a fun story on that. Um, I win that award. It's about two years ago. I called my mom and said, mom, I'm moving to New York and I'm going to go be a banker. And <laughs> <laughs> mom said, hallelujah, son. <laughs> You've been an entrepreneur your whole life. You're not going to like this and they're not going to like you. So anyways, fast forward, win this award. And I call my mom up and I tell her and she's like, cool, son. Great. And my mom, you see, she's one of these like redneck nerds. She likes to eat corn nuts and Slim Jims and get on Google and go research stuff. And so she researches all these other digital bankers of the year. And she calls me back 20 minutes later and she goes, you know, you're the only one who won and didn't do anything with technology. Right. <laughs> and her point, though, was spot on. Everyone else who's won, it was around something they really did with technology. And if you read the story as to why they picked me, it has nothing to do with technology. It has everything to do with culture. And I think, you know, what <clears throat> there's a lot of anxiety in the community bank industry right now around innovation and technology and digital and falling behind. And I think it's incredibly important the words in which we use and we tell ourselves those stories, right? And so, one month into the job, we rolled out a new tagline, the adaptive digital bank. And yet nothing else had changed. We had the same shitty mobile app. Guess what? We still have that same app today. <laughs> <laughs> we have the same online banking, the same everything. But all of a sudden, everyone started thinking about, wait, is this a digital bank? What should that mean? Wait, this is me. What can I do? Right. And so 
after the first couple of months, it was a little bit tough. Like this feels almost hypocritical, but then as it settled in, it became more about something that everyone understood and agreed with. And then we brought in the culture. And it's interesting if you go back through those words, whether it's our mission statement, the anchors, the core values, you don't hear technology or digital at all, right? It's not in there. And yet we are seen as one of the leading digital banks in the country and probably the only community bank to become a digital bank. Um, and I think that tells us something fascinating about the storytelling and who we are and how that works. So anyways, I'm a little bit lost in all of that. Um, sorry, Lisa, got to remind me your original question. It's all good. I just wanted to know how, because I knew that you didn't have this innovative technology. Um, so I wanted to know how did you come about to actually win this award? Because it's a, a unique wow. spin on the history of that award, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I want to dig into, uh, yeah, you want to uh, tie a bow on that? And I want to transition to another topic I know that you've got some cool insights on. Yeah. So I think um, what you see and probably what American Banker picked up on is the last two years has been infrastructure building. I think yeah. what you will see out of Quantic, even this very day, um, actually did something that has never been done before in U.S. banking history. It's not public yet, but I, it's coming. W what you'll see in the next six to 12 months is unlike anything you've ever experienced from a bank and what does it mean? We've deconstructed everything it means to be a bank and reconstructed it. And technology is at the forefront of it. And I think the only way that that was possible for this type of transformation was to get a complete buy-in from people who had been in the industry forever. And so I think American Banker probably picked up on the, the lightning in the bottle that we had. And it's going to be really fun because I think uh, we haven't even really gotten started yet, to be honest. That's amazing. Amazing. Well, congratulations pre-launch. Thank you. So <laughs> I haven't been in the banking business for seven years, and so I wouldn't call myself a banker, but I was the chief people oh, yeah. officer, the chief, chief evangelist there <laughs> for, a, for a $50 billion plus 5,000 person bank. I've been around for 85 years. That's bank. So many of these banks, uh, including ATB Financial, have tried to start a virtual bank, a digital bank, mm -hmm. everywhere. Most of them have failed. They failed miserably. So, What's with you guys? What the hell, Patrick? So, how did you know what 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 did you guys do, and what have you done, and what's going on? Yeah, it's a great comment there, Lauren. I I spoke at uh, taught at University of Wisconsin last week on their digital grad program for digital banking, and this is actually one thing to talk I talked about and really challenge these bankers. You can't your your culture is who you are. And if you're going to be digital, your entire organization has to be digital. Yeah. You can't say like, guess what? I'm really, really fit, but it's just my right arm. Every rest <laughs> of my body is fit. But you know, if you check out my biceps and my triceps, like, wow, I'm fit. And meanwhile, I got a 300 pound beer belly. Like it doesn't work, right? And so what so many banks are doing is they're saying, okay, we don't really want to change. We don't really want to innovate. We don't really want to figure out how to attract new talent. So let's create this little thing that we can contain and manage and not, you know, not ruin our customers and we'll stick it over there. Well, those shit, that's not going to work, right? Like this is one of the things that I found so fascinating as listening to all these banks and they would say, well, yeah, we're going to launch a digital bank and a new brand and a new name and we're going to market it outside of our community because we're going to pay better interest rates and we don't want to screw up you know, the rate that we're paying today in our community, you know, not banks. And they say, well, oh, and I said, well, that's fascinating because don't you understand that the other 60 banks here are going to do the same thing to your, to your area? <laughs> like you either cannibalize yourself in the best interest of your customer or you don't, and you're not going to survive. And so I think that's what, you know, we saw that with Apple and the iPod and the iPhone and just what the way they've constantly done that. And so I think, you know, for us, we chose to say we are all one. We are not going to be this or that. Um, and I think that's been a key part of our success is everyone knows who we are and where we're trying to be. And there's not this war or you're this way or you're that way or I like this mom and you're that dad. Like, right. We are just who we are. And I think that's part of 
the critical piece of culture that you have to do. To uh, yeah, I think that's an important lesson. Too many of these institutions are not paying attention to. Patrick, you put um, unusual attention to language. Like you, um, words mean something. To They really mean something to you. I mean, they do to most people, but they really mean something to you. So what's the story behind that? And how do you make that part of your culture and your innovation? Yeah, I think, Lauren, this has been one of the things that's been fun for us as, you know, our friendships built and developed is, you know, thinking about and talking about words. I think um, one, I think I grew up with two very parents who were very uh, intelligent and well-read and they had good vocabulary. So I was exposed to words, I think, early on. Um, I think I spent three years helping run a psychology business and really got um, exposed to the nuance, the incredible nuance, but power in the words that we use um, in terms of the impact they have on us and how we see each other and how we communicate. So I share that those are kind of these things that are happening um, in the background almost or subconsciously. And then really there was this question in the back of my mind for the last decade of is what is the identity of business? Right. I had started a business in college and I was trying to understand, like, I know I know my identity is Patrick, but what's the identity of my business? And in trying to answer that question, I think this is where words really stood out to me was that the only way I could attempt to solve that was through an analogy of a person in a business, a person in a business. And so, you know, I, I thought about, you know, like my friend Jane, she uses certain I was like, what stands out to me about her? she uses certain words. And I don't hear those when I talk to Lauren, I don't hear those when I talk to Hilton or I talk to Lisa. Okay, so that's true at the individual level. Is that also true at a group level? And I was reminded of I went on my grandparents' 50th anniversary 20 years ago when one of my three-year-old cousins is complaining about a hike in Colorado and another cousin turns and looks at her and goes, suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> and that phrase, 20 years later, it's still a part of what it means to be in the cells family. Why? Right. It wasn't the trip. It wasn't hiking. It wasn't the jokes of the time or whatever. But again, we see just this incredible power in words and what they can mean. They can what they mean to us. And so that's something I've spent a lot of time about thinking on and studying is words. How, what do they mean? How do they work? And how do we use those to build up, to uplift, to bring together, to create a sense of belonging? Um, because in the absence of that, you're losing all of this power, right? Like my cousin could have said to my other cousin 20 years ago, well, cells well, are hard workers and we don't quit. None of us would have remembered that. Yeah. I can get a text from my cousin I haven't talked to in two years and I immediately feel love. I feel known. I feel unique. I feel connected. And that's the difference of three words, mm -hmm. right? So can we be more intentional about that in cultures and in what we do and how we work? So. Yeah, you're onto something really important that I don't think has been uh, feel very well in this notion around words and identity. I mean, the power of that. Like I, we know we, at some intellectual level, level, we know it, but I think you're taking it to a whole nother level. Can I run some words by you and tell me what they mean to you from a uh, culture and an innovation, chief innovation? We haven't obviously rehearsed any of this. I'm just curious. Yeah. What, is, what does sameness mean to you? Um, the My blush reaction to that is um, if I guess that I almost go to a place of fear. Um fear of being different, fear of not being accepted, fear of not being one, fear. I don't know. There's a deep sense of fear and all of that. There's something about that word I've never, I've never liked, to be honest. Um, yeah, I'm with you. And I, I detest it to some extent because I think sometimes it's the safe pattern. The, the, I don't know if you do anything. Uh, I don't know if you ever really, like you talk about breaking the system that we're not talking about sameness here. Right. I mean, that's, I mean, I, and as a banker, when you say breaking the system, that causes a lot of kind of uh, like, uh, you know, 
little shaken. Exactly. Chief, Chief Risk Officer, I'm going to break the system. That sounds a little bit scary. Don't you just want to copy what Bank of America has done and yeah. you know, take the safe way out? But this, so to me, words are almost like, and I want to go back to your exercise because I think this is interesting, but I, words are almost uh, music to me, right? So what's the, it's almost like emotional music. And mm -hmm. as a composer, I can build that. So I tell you, I, I'm a bank that wants to break the system and immediately you're jarred and you're, you're wanting to question. You don't feel comfortable. Then I say, look, the ways I want to do that or how you'll know I did that is I want to only do lending where other banks won't. Oh, that feels good. <laughs> I want to build deposit products that actually align with your passion, the thing you care the most about and play an active role in. You go, well, that, that feels good. And I'm going to do it in a means that I call maximum leverage because I, I believe people are the greatest asset and we want to have a place of human flourishing. And now all of a sudden you see where I've written this song to where you're, huh, what you're taking it back and now you're paying attention. And then when you come to hear what I mean by that or what we mean by that, you feel connected, you feel drawn into it. Right. And it's just like that crescendo in music when it comes up and then what happens. Um, and so yeah, you know, that's a beautiful kind of description. I love it. I've never heard it described that way. When I first talked to you, the very I first either. I just made that up. You made me very uncomfortable the very first time. I'm supposed to be this culture kind of, um, I pride myself in really kind of being advanced and thinking about this stuff. And then you start talking about the use of worse of language and how you kind of captured the essence of things. And I'm going, I'm going, shit, you know, how did he do that? Like, how did he find the way to capture the essence? So like say cheese, like, you know, that really kind of inspired me and provoked me and pissed me off all at the same time. Like, I mean, really, all good stuff. Like, I mean, it really kind of made me think back around how I've described the things I feel, you know, that are, I really value. I don't think I've done it in language that is really, really compelling. I know what it is in my head, and I play the tune in my head my own self, but it doesn't do anybody any good up there when it just goes ringing around in the music box in my own head. Anyway, I just thank you for that as much as it kind of made me feel kind of uncomfortable. It was hopefully, hopefully it made you smile because that's the point of the phrase. It did. It did. The whole thing made me smile, but it also made me uncomfortable to make me really kind of reflect yeah. about, and that's kind of how you learn from other people, right? You want to get to that uncomfortable edge where you're going, you know, um, you know, I was kind of, part of me want to go, what is this smart ass guy with his hat on backwards in San Diego know about this culture shit? And man, that really put me, put me on my heels a little bit. So thank you for that. It was yeah. good. Well, being uncomfortable yeah. is a great place to be because it's really where you know we tune into a higher frequency of greatness in ourselves and, and inspire to be better, right? So yeah. I don't know. I should have put my hat on. I, I feel left out now. I don't feel like I belong, gentlemen. Yeah, well, that's why I wore this hat. Although Garrett makes me think it tells me I look like I'm directing traffic out on the street for the for the city. Uh, you remind but, me of um, uh, what is it, Doctor Zeus? Who's the one yeah. that wears that, the crazy hat? Is it, It's Dr. Seuss, right? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think this is weird. No, you know, we have to, like, so your question around sameness, um, I, you know, obviously everyone has different connotations for different words, but, and so you have to be aware of that, but there's something in that, that again, I think there's this sense of fear. And so you have to almost think about it in terms of music, right? That's how I think of it. And what, what is it that I'm bringing in? And it's why like the words like diversity to go say something a little bit provocative here. Diversity isn't the goal, right? That's, that's almost transactional. Yeah. Um, what does matter is the sense of collectiveness or belonging or unity or divert, you know? And so, there's something in it that's incredibly important that the best thoughts in the world, the best groups of people do take into what they, they, I can, I'm okay with others and I want others because together we're better, but it's not just that I need six different people sitting around the room. Right. So 
you know, this gets into a much deeper conversation, but I think, you know, and I, you know, it's something we've talked about, but words really do matter if, and you can use them to create a beautiful poetry or beautiful music if you want to. Yeah. You know, about the intentionality behind it, right? Like when you're intentional about your words and there's actual real meaning behind it, then it has purpose, then they matter. You know, something that was kind of curious around when you and I kind of, we were kind of, when we, we were introduced by somebody else, obviously we hadn't met each other and we were just talking to them. They're kind of like, obviously pretty generationally different. Right. Yeah. Um, and, um, and well, we, we kind of connected on belonging and it was, you were working on that word. We're working on that word. What, what appeals to you about that word so much? And what are you digging with? And I know you're doing some work with some really cool people like, um, you know, elsewhere. And, and what's, what's, what are you digging about it? Well, you know, so some of the phrases that mean a lot to me, uh, human flourishing is obviously one we've talked about. Um, but I also think that there is, I use the term reverence, right? Like, we all know what, you know, if you, when you walk into the Sistine Chapel, your breath is taken away. You know you're seeing something beautiful. Or when you're sitting outside and there's stars falling or shooting stars happening, like we all know those moments where you're just like, whoa. And I think when it comes to business and whether an organization whether that's a soccer team, it's a church group, it's business, it's whatever, <clears throat> that we don't have a reverence for the human lives that we influence and we interact with, especially when we're in a position of leadership, right? And that how I finish this last meeting of the day will likely influence what you're going to go home to and what you're going to interact with your partner or your kids, right? And how all of this works. And so I think we don't, we, it's, it's tragic to me. There's the lack of reverence that we have. And so now to bring it back to your point, there is none of us who, no matter how hard or shrewd or transactional you are you still want to feel like you belong to something yeah right and i think we if we ever want to know if something's deeply true then we should be able to see it in examples today and we should be able to see it you know down in science even right like how does life how does humans procreate you belong to someone else it's in the act of belonging at the most simplest level and so i think from a business standpoint, belonging is what we all long for. And what greater vehicle is there in life than business to foster this? Because this is where, after all, we all spend all of our time. We put our best energy and time and thoughts. We make more sacrifices for this than anything we do in our life. And yet it doesn't usually make me feel like I belong. It makes me feel like I have to earn it or I have to take it from you or you're taking it from me. And then, right, that's just going to flow into everything else we do in life. And so can we actually create a place uh, where you do feel like you belong? And if business could figure that out, I can't even begin to fathom the world in which we would live in. Yeah, I'm with you. I, told, I mean, we're on that same journey together on this, and it's just such a the right fight. It really is. I, I couldn't agree more, and I'm, I'm loving that we're all pushing against that wall. It's such that I completely, completely agree. For those of you who are watching, like we've got Mike and, and Gabriel and Ron on, you know, send us a one in the comments if you agree with what Patrick just said, because it's true. We all want a place and we all want to have a feeling and a sense of belonging, whether it's at home or at work. Yeah. Hey, you know, one of the things I'm curious about, just to, uh, to get to kind of, I didn't know that your average age, your customer was 58. That quite surprised me, actually. Like, I, that that blew me away. On the deposit side, yeah, the average on the deposit age. deposit side, yeah, okay. Because that's not the case on your on your loan side, right? Yeah, and the more, so the only type of lending we do is mortgages. Um, and But your, your average age is probably not that far off. It's probably in the 40s. 
But, you know, people – so today and what we do on the deposit side is not very indicative of where we're going. Um, uh, <laughs> your, Kathleen says you're a banking philosopher, uh, Patrick. <laughs> i got to give a shout-out to my friend Katie Deneen. She, she's a real philosopher who helps me actually understand. Yeah, she is. you got to read Kant to be able to, to appreciate her for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but where we're going is not is as I said we've done the infrastructure. But for many banks who want to embrace this age of digital, they um, can really take our exact playbook and use it. Um, but understand this: like if you're going to offer a banking product online, then the only way you're differentiating yourself is the interest you pay. Right? That's it. How easy is it for me to get to use you and the interest I pay? Well, then let's take that to the next level. Who has money that they actually care to earn interest on? It's not the millennial. <laughs> it's the 58-year-old. And like this is one of those things that just kind of blows my mind still to this day. Like every, all we want to talk about banking digital millennials. I go, what are you talking about? Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. They don't have no money. <laughs> they, don't have, they don't care about interest rates. And even more importantly, and this is, again, these are the words, right? And this goes back to this, that – because they say I'm a community bank, then therefore I need all these bells and whistles because I feel like I'm going to be left behind by fintechs. Oh, my God. Okay. The most fastest growing, largest market share digital bank is Marcus by Goldman Sachs, right? They've done more deposits in the U.S. They opened one out of six savings accounts in the U.K. They've been doing this for years. Only six months ago, they launched a mobile app. So how is it that the number one digital bank doesn't have a mobile app and yet they're the number one digital bank? <laughs> You see this anxiety we create. It is. You see this anxiety we create in ourselves, and it goes back to the power of words, right? So I, this is one thing I try to talk about. What makes a community bank a community bank versus a digital bank? And as long as you are telling yourself, I'm on the outside, you will be inherently anxious, right? And then all of a sudden, you may, and then out of anxiety, we make bad decisions, when you change those words and that anxiety goes away, there's a calmness that comes and a clarity as to who I am and where I want to go and who I want to be. And I don't need to do all these things. Um, but, you know, and again, it's the same thing. You almost like you can almost feel that anxiety in the music around, oh, I need to go do digital banking. So it's going to be for the millennial. That's just not logically congruent. Millennials don't have money to care about interest. And digital banking doesn't mean you even need a damn mobile app. <laughs> You know, I think there's something just, and I know this is not about banking, it's much deeper, but that's the medium. Uh, but I think it'd be great for our listeners and our viewers to hear about the people that you actually give your loans to, your mortgages to, because yeah. they are also not often the typical kind of um, customer for a lot of banks. So tell us about that customer. Yeah, so this is, goes back to the mission, break the system. How do we believe we can do that is through adaptive lending. So we lend to uh, gig economy workers, uh, self-employed, low income. Um, we're a community development financial institution, which is a designation the U.S. Treasury gives banks. There's about 150 of us in the country. Um, and so we, because we have that designation, which is not easy to get, we have certain exemptions from regulations that because we're mission driven. And so we can do a mortgage without needing a W-2 or tax return, right? We can do more truly what was known as stated income and that has many negative connotations. But in the couple billion dollars of mortgages we've given, we've never had one loss. We've never taken one home from one person, right? So it's in how you do it, but it goes back to, so most of our borrowers on the mortgage side they cannot get a mortgage from another bank because they don't qualify. Yeah. Right. And this is, it's an interesting thing. This, I, you know, I think compliance and innovation have to have a symbiotic relationship. I'm actually a huge proponent of regulations and the regulators because they force stability and we need that at the same time, there's never going, we don't live in a vacuum where there is perfection in anything. And so in the addition of Dodd-Frank in America and all of this regulations, it did leave a lot of people out. And so we have to figure out how do you, how do you still, you know, bring those people in? And that's really what we're focused on, right? From a lending standpoint is saying, that's, a, that's all we need to do. We don't need to go be Chase or JP Morgan. We're just going to look at where people are left out 
and we're going to go figure out you shouldn't be left out. We're not going to make risky loans. It's our money on the line, right? We're still capitalists, but we're going to bring you in and we're going to give you something. And so that's the only type of lending we want to do, right? Is if you can't get a loan, then give us a call and let's see if we can't figure out how. Hey, you know, I'm going to, uh, Lisa, I, I know you want to dig into, but I'm so curious, Patrick, around because I'm getting to know more about you. Like, I, I'm just curious, kind of um, uh, chief, chief innovation officer. By the way, the shelf life of a chief innovation officer is not very high. You know that, right? It's a bad time for me to turn my resignation in, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just it's a tough role, right? It's a tough role. Kind of right? the coach, like the lead coach on a hockey team. If, you're, if your right. team's not winning, you're out. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it's like a lot of innovation officers, you know, their innovation department, everybody's sniping at them and that kind of stuff. And then they they create a, some incubated unit or something like that. How do you think, you know, in the spirit of words being so important, how do you think about innovation? Like you were talking about presenting to your team yesterday. How do you make them think about that in your organization? I Just expand on that because it's got to – a big cultural influence around who you attract in your organization, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, the, I look at it and I, I know you're, I, the point you're making about the shelf life is not lost on me. Uh, but look, I'm not trying to do th the innovation is perhaps in the simplest level that I'm not trying to be the innovative one, right? We've created a culture that says, try it on, be quick to do new things. Yeah. yeah. Focus on progress, not perfection. Make sure you know the goal and let's have fun. And my job is simply to make sure that that happens. And in doing that, everyone else actually does all the work for me of being a chief innovation officer, right? Like all I got to be is the chief reminder officer. I don't actually <laughs> have to do any innovation. You know, I just had to innovate on what it means to innovate. And so um, a lot, so much of what we're doing and what we're rolling out in the coming months I didn't come up with, wasn't my job to, right? And uh, I don't even have to worry about it. I just have to make sure that the culture is what it is and people know and believe it. Um, and I think that's what, you know, again, innovation. So one is too oftentimes synonymous with technology. So in some ways I actually hate the word yeah, because of all the connotations. But then two, um, innovation oftentimes innovation offices, innovation officers, it's a bunch of really smart people not grounded in reality, or it's just really smart people. And that's not necessarily innovation. Intelligence does not equal innovation, right? Yeah, it's great to think about things different in a certain way, but that's not innovation. So, um, you know, I, and I think that's why we see such a short shelf life of innovation. I completely agree. And, you know, I think that's a great insight for all those innovative ex innovation officers that are in support groups around North America, sitting in circles, talking about what the hell happened. Cause I think, uh, I think that's really good, really good, very practical guidance, Patrick. I'll give you another example on that. Um, innovate. So often I think, when we have this conversation around innovation, what we're thinking about is how do we bring something new into what exists, right? That is for many of us innovation, new product, new service, new technology, new customer, something new. Uh, I would challenge that to say that the most effective innovation isn't about adding anything into what already exists. It's this idea of reframing. Yeah. So, can I look at these most basic under, can I become aware of these most basic underlying assumptions? And if I only change that assumption, then while nothing else changes, everything else changes, right? And so the example I share about this is in sixth grade, my family removed me from the suburbs of Richmond, Virginia to a town of 10,000 people in rural Missouri. And, you know, if you go back to your middle school days, all you want to do is fit in. Right. And so I'm there seventh grade wanting to fit in in this town and all the cool guys shave their arms. And I don't know why it wasn't like we had a swim team or swimming pools or anything. It's just what you do. So I started shaving my arms. I grabbed my sister's pink Venus razor. And, <laughs> and then two years later, we moved to this small town of 2000 people in rural Indiana. 
and you know, I'm at a sleepover with my friends, my new friends. I get out my my Venus, and I realize very quickly that that's no longer very cool at all. <laughs> you know, like I'm no longer invited to stay at that sleepover. It's so not cool, right? And so, as I reflected back on that, it's interesting because in one town, it was such a belief that it was the thing to do. It wasn't challenged, and yet, in a town only 700 miles away, it had the complete opposite meaning behind it and it was not challenged and so i you know how can we look at what's going on in front of us and say what is so basic that if i envisioned it differently how would everything else change right and that's tough to do but that's really what i think the role of innovation is it's not to add the definition of innovation isn't to add to bring something new into it's to change which means we have to look at what's already existing and change that which exists. Not not it's not adding new shit. <laughs> yeah, never gonna work. So, yeah. yeah, I'm gonna channel, channel Tim Ferriss or Joe Rogan for just a couple of minutes, Lisa. One, Patrick, what the hell does your day look like? What, what do you do every day? Like, what's what's a day in the life of Patrick Sells? Like, uh, you know, I pro the first I get up about three a.m. I go to bed about eight p.m. Uh, so not typical. <laughs> You're not, Lisa Patrick's soulmate. <laughs> not your typical millennial. Um, I spend probably five, six. I spend the first hour. And then in a great day, the first hour or two, it's just reading. Um, I like to write poetry. I like to listen to music. I like to read philosophy. Um, then it's usually four or five hours of, I probably do. And I think my assistant, Jane, who's my partner, uh, like right-hand partner, I think she books about 17 meetings a day and then usually spend a couple 17. hours. Huh? One seven, 17? Yeah. So it can't be hour meetings, obviously. So what do you do your meetings in what kind of increments? 15 minute increments or as needed or what? It's usually 30 minutes, 15 to 30. You know, we have this belief, know the goal. One of the other things we do when you start off every meeting is everyone has to say, what's the goal of the meeting? Yeah. <laughs> That's going to focus us. You don't really need an hour for many things. Um, the only things I would spend an hour on are, are, is is one on one conversations at any level, uh, because I do. We all need time to feel like we can be comfortable and express ourselves. But largely, what I do is um, try to listen to people and bring them back to the culture and what we're trying to do. Um, I do very little work outside of that. Um, I I like math. So I like to play with spreadsheets sometimes for fun when accounting wants me to, when accounting let, throws me a bone and they say, hey, they probably know the answer, but they go, hey, here's a spreadsheet. It doesn't make sense. Mainly they, they just want me to shut up and leave them alone and stop spending money, you know? <laughs> I love that. I love that. Well, you know, we want to close up the show here shortly. And and uh, Lauren and I are on a mission um, to find out more stories about where you belong or when you didn't belong in life. And that doesn't necessarily mean in the workplace. It just, can you tell us a story um, where you felt like you had a true sense of belonging or you didn't feel like you belonged? And why was that? Um. I thought I had a sense of belonging in Indiana when I shaved my arms. I, I thought I figured out immediately how to be a cool kid. And, uh, learned very fastly that I was not going to be a cool kid. <laughs> um, a time when I did belong, I've got a group of friends down in Austin, Texas. Um, and we were actually all together. This is a group and I started wearing this hat um, a couple months ago. And there is immediate you you know it because in each of our uniqueness it's not challenging or threatening to the other yeah that's when you know you belong mm -hmm. i am loved for who i am i'm not molded i'm not shifted i'm not shaped i'm not round i'm nothing i am just loved for who i am and therefore i give that back and you know that feeling right you know, where I was trying to shave my arms, what am I trying to do? I'm trying, my uniqueness is in trying to be sane, the same. And that's not accepted. I know I belong when my uniqueness is loved. Yeah. So one final sip. Uh, how does 
curiosity play in your day-to-day role? Endlessly curious. I would, I remember when there's moments in life that stands out, I was 17 years old in college and decided that the more experiences I can have, the more similarities, analogies, and differences I can recognize. And that will help me learn and process what's going on around me faster. And so I just became obsessed with no matter what, I wanted to have as many experiences as possible from cultures, religion, food, people, challenges, successes. I didn't even care. That was the only measuring card for me. Doesn't matter about business, didn't matter about money, didn't matter about anything. It was just experiences, right? And I think our minds are muscles. We know this, right? As we get older, it becomes more important to work out, to do things, to keep our bodies. Aging is the process of muscle deterioration. The lack of curiosity will deteriorate our minds. It's everything. Patrick, it is such a cool thing. I'm, I'm sorry that Hilton couldn't be on, but I'm kind of glad in some ways. We love him. But <laughs> it was a chat. That was pretty big. And, uh, you know, if you do, uh, anybody speaking of spreadsheets, if you kind of want to get start to put these pieces together, start to take WD-40, Quantic Bank, others, and start to map out some common ingredients that they do in their own unique ways around the passion, around purpose, the passion, around values but the way it's articulated into everyday life and how it it, it is captured. You, we are what we do. And um, we love what you do. And uh, uh, for our guests and our viewers, Patrick is going to be on a panel with um, Hilton every couple of, every second Wednesday, right? If we can. Second Wednesday of the month. Second Wednesday of the month. So, you know, these guys are going to be coming back and hanging out. I, I'd love to see you bring Katie with you sometime. Maybe we can yeah. invite her to a guest. She sounds like she'd be like a just a, you know, a fabulous kind of a guest sometime. But we'll just be bringing in cool guests all the time, and the panel will just jump around, and we'll put our hats on backwards, forwards, <laughs> shave our arms if we feel like it or if we don't. No, that's not too carried away. I Great. still have one arm. One arm's got hair on it, just as a reminder. <laughs> Drink the bourbon, a little wine, whatever we feel like. It doesn't matter. It's just, you know what? We're hanging out and just having fun together and learning from each other. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Lisa, Patrick. You want to wrap it up? Yeah. yeah I, a few last words, Patrick. Oh, I was just going to say thank you. You know, Lisa, it's been great getting to know you and Lauren. You've uh, inspired me as always, and I've loved our conversations, relationships, and I love your hat. And uh, look forward, you know, to having many more conversations and getting our fourth amigo Hilton involved in all this craziness. Yeah, I'm looking forward to wearing that uh, Quantic hat when it shows up. Huh? So, uh, all right, thanks. See you. See you in a couple of weeks. And uh, thanks again, Lisa. Bye, everybody. Good night. Bye, everybody.